Welcome to Antimatterpod, a Star Trek podcast where we discuss fashion, feminism, subtext and subspace, hosted by Annika and Liz. Today we're discussing mothers and motherhood in Star Trek, and we're joined by a special guest. Introduce yourself, Caroline. I'm Caroline. You can find me on Twitter. So on Twitter, it's at Riker's Sex Blouse. Also on Tumblr, uh, same thing, Riker's Sex Blouse. And I do also write fanfic, so if you want to check that out, it's... R underscore S underscore B instead of spelling out the whole thing. <laughs> it's so. a great handle. <laughs> it is. I think it is. Every once in a while, uh, like most of the time no one mentions it, but every once in a while I'll get a response from someone that is just so tickled by it. And that's always fun. <laughs> I think before I actually started following you, I would see you being reblogged by other people on Tumblr and go, yeah, that is just... I don't know if I want to befriend this person because they seem cool <laughs> or if I want to avoid them because that just reminds me of that episode. <laughs> and that, you can see which side I came down on in the end. Well, I'm glad. I can understand the, the hesitation to be reminded of that episode constantly, but I've just come to uh, accept it and enjoy it. I mean, my little uh, avatar image is him in, you know... The Angels One outfit, so. <laughs> it's magnificent in its own way. And I saw a guy cosplaying it once and I had to salute him for his dedication to accuracy and self-humiliation. Oh my gosh. It was amazing. It's great. It, like, props to that guy. It was, <laughs> it was glorious. Well, we're here today to, to discuss motherhood in Star Trek. It's actually M Mother's Day here in Australia right now, so I should call my mum after this. Uh, Annika, you have some stats. I do. Okay. Uh, I looked at, the, the, I started with, I did a search for like, you know, a discussion of the best mothers or the worst mothers or basically, you know, mothers in general in Star mm. Trek. And what I found was a bunch of lists of like, you know, the top 10 mothers in Star Trek, which were always, you know, posted on Mother's Day because that's the first time anyone actually talks about them. <laughs> and uh, and so I started there and I, I had a whole bunch of them and then I would, went through each series. Uh, and so what I came up with is 38 on-screen mothers. 30 of these are real people yes. who appear <laughs> as themselves on screen. I mean, you know, the character is, is actually there. And then eight of them are simulations of the mom. Okay. But they still appear on screen. I did not yes. include people who were, like, mentioned dialogue or show mm -hmm. up on a mm -hmm. view screen. Like, I know that uh, Archer's mom's name is Sally, but she's never actually on a In series. So she doesn't count. And also you can go too far down a path of going, well, that, that, that character probably had a mother, yeah, so yeah, she exactly. counts. <laughs> we, we, we need, I needed to cut up somewhere. But I did include the Horta, uh, Gracie the Whale, mm. and Lizard Janeway. <laughs> so, I, <laughs> I'm so delighted by your thoroughness. But I, um, I did not include uh, Kira Norris because although she is a mm. surrogate, she's not actually the mother no that, you know she she's a, a related you know she's in like an orbit of motherhood but she's not actually the mother so i didn't include her 
a future episode about surrogacy in Star Trek would be really interesting and I am completely unqualified to speak on that subject. <laughs> I know, we, I think we would have to find somebody. Oh yeah, oh yeah, but if we mm-hmm. could, it would be cool. Yeah, that would be really uh, interesting. So of the 38, uh, yes. 11 are dead or <laughs> presumed dead in at least one timeline. So almost a third. Yeah. Three die on screen, Kellar, Seska, and Amanda Grayson in the Kelvin timeline. Yes. Three die off screen, Tasha Yar, Silva LaForge, and uh, Miral, Bolana's mom. Uh-huh. Uh, four die pre-series, Sarah Sisko, Jennifer Sisko, Kira Maru, and Aaron Hansen. Yes. And uh, one is presumed dead. She dies pre-series, but she's not actually dead, Gabriel Burnham. Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> Eight of these uh, moms raised their child by themselves. Uh, four were widowed. Eileen, who is in the uh, TOS episode. Friday's child. Yep. Beverly Crusher, who is our, mm. our big main cast uh-huh. mom. Lubexana Troy. Uh, Deanna was seven when her dad died, so I consider that raising her. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. And uh, Winona Kirk. Uh-huh. Uh, in, again, in the, t- in the Kelvin timeline. Uh, one is divorced, Moral, uh, Bolana's mom again, and uh, three were separated, Carol Marcus, Killar, and Samantha Wildman, all separated mm-hmm. while pregnant. And then 14 are moms, but we don't actually ever see them raising a child or you know, spending any amount of time with them. 11 of these uh, we see with a baby or with baby. The Horta, Eileen, Gracie the Whale... Deanna Troy, Cassidy Yates, Catherine Janeway, Cass Bellana Torres, DePaul, Winona Kirk, and Laurel all have infants or are, or are pregnant. <laughs> and then three, Guinan, Tasha, and uh, Philippa Giorgio, at least in the Mirror Universe, it's mentioned that they have children, but we, that's it. That's all we know. I mean, we, we know who Tasha's daughter is, but we don't actually ever see Tasha and Celia in the same place. No. Uh, uh-huh. So there are, you know, there's these 38, but there are a lot of Kawayats as to yeah. if they count as mothers, if we see them, you know, for more than an episode. So there's all these, like, motherhood is not a big deal in Star Trek is, is I guess, uh, where I'm going with that. To the point where this is, a, this is a pet peeve of mine and I've just been waiting for my chance to talk about it. <laughs> Uh, Beverly Crusher was the last regular to be added to the list of regulars for TNG because they had this full detailed background and uh, I guess character arc worked out for Wesley Crusher or Leslie Crusher in her female incarnation. They went Mm -hmm. back and forth. But it was only literally the last minute that they went, hang on, Wesley or (laughs) Leslie probably has a mother. Like they had worked out the dead father, the connection with Picard, uh, the crush on on Riker and uh, older sister relationship with Tasha if it was a girl and I guess the other way around if it was a boy. Thankfully that never really appeared on screen. But at, <laughs> at, only at the very last minute did they go, oh, oh yeah, the mother. <laughs> Which is really I, yeah. a metaphor for a lot it's, of how Beverly's parenting goes down yeah. over the seasons. Yeah. It's one of those things, like I don't know whether to laugh or cry. <laughs> Oh, I, I definitely have to laugh because otherwise I'll throw things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's the third option. Laugh, cry, throw things at your television. 
like, oh, Jean, you tried. <laughs> yeah, they they tried. Yeah, and <laughs> Beverly is also the only major character who is a mother throughout her run on the series. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And yet, as Annika has pointed out in her TNG recaps, she is often sidelined as Wesley's parent, like to the point where she just leaves him alone for a year on a starship <laughs> and he's 16, 17 years old. Mm-hmm. Like, in this world, that would be neglect. Yeah. <laughs> She'd be arrested. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, I will say that that I think it's it's great that like we can say this future society raising a child is mm-hmm. a communal thing mm-hmm. yeah but, yeah that's, but really that's cool. not that that's not what they were actually doing though <laughs> it was it was sort of like well we have to do this because we no longer have the mom character <laughs> but we want to keep the the kid so well yeah. and another positive thing is so you know presumably she's got this i mean we see her having you know the very successful career as chief medical officer on a starship traveling through space and that hasn't clearly has not stopped her from having a family and so that's really nice and positive but just their focus is so much more on his relationship with pretty much every other character except for her which yeah, is yeah. bizarre and and really sad it is i feel like quite often when beverly gets to be a parent unless there's some external influence like sarik making her angry with him it's a really conflict-free relationship and I realize that that's just the nature of TNG but (laughs) it seems like if you're a hugely intelligent Starfleet officer raising a child prodigy Mm -hmm. there would be more push and pull between you as his ambitions outstrip his uh, capabilities and you sort of have to learn to live with each other like I don't even think they live together after season three it's just it's very unclear yeah yeah Wesley has two sort of final episodes because he has the one where he's the, it's the last time that he's a main character and then he has the one where like he leaves to mm. go with the traveler mm-hmm. and in both of those episodes it's like Beverly is an afterthought like she's yeah. barely like she basically says goodbye to him in a in a transporter room and, and then the big farewell is with Picard is with Picard in, mm-hmm. in, in, in so it's just really, like, I get that they were trying to do this whole Wesley sees Picard as a father figure thing, arc. And I love their relationship. But but it didn't have to be to the exclusion of Wesley's mother. Right. Yeah. It's, it's really exactly. unfair and unfortunate uh, that, you know, she raised Wesley by herself from three to, what is it, 14 when he shows up on the Enterprise. I thought he was five when his father died. I don't know. I, I looked it up on some timeline and I got three. But hmm. young. Yeah. yeah. Child. Yeah. Yes. Hmm. He, he, like, he doesn't remember his father. And I feel mm-hmm. like... I mean, it's, it's, it's iffy. Five is very young still, but I feel mm-hmm. like... I don't know. Yeah, I anyway. feel like he'd have more <laughs> memories if... if yeah. Um, but regardless... <laughs> for at least 10 years. <laughs> and, yes. and so I feel like she should be a main, I don't I, A big influence, influence, I guess, <laughs> in his life. And it's never really established. 
he doesn't like his intelligence is not attributed to her his mm-hmm. uh abilities his compassion like nothing mm-hmm. about wesley is contributed to his mother yeah which is ridiculous because jack crusher seems like a nice guy who was pretty average like not in a bad way but beverly is the one who can single-handedly solve your plague and it's really it's like implied in the in the beginning that picard hasn't been a part of their lives since like yeah in between time they didn't have this big relationship yeah they avoided each other and so so, like, why does Picard get all the credit for... Who Wesley is. Making Wesley into a man. <laughs> if, well, uh, I'm, do you want the answer to that question? <laughs> I think I can guess. Is it yeah. sexism? <laughs> hmm, maybe. <laughs> I feel like Beverly really comes to life as a character after Wesley leaves in the fourth season, and that's when she's suddenly getting proper romances and she's having adventures and solving crime. And I think it's, it's really... It, it really says a lot that she only becomes a fully fledged character after that point. Oh, that's just heartbreaking to think about it that way. <laughs> I can do you one better. I rewatched Dark Page, mm-hmm. the last TNG episode with Loxana to prepare mm-hmm. for this, and I realized mm-hmm. most of Loxana's major relationships are with people other than Deanna and, you know, Timerson in Half a Life and Odo mm-hmm. in deep space Mm -hmm. nine and again motherhood is almost something that holds her back as a character yeah and and it's it's played for laughs and it's played for like friction between luxana and deanna Mm -hmm. yes it's not it's not really about them I do feel like it is about them. Like it is like one of the few mother child relationships that we see that does focus on that part of the relationship, but it's, it's mm. just so often negative and we don't get the balance of as much positive with them. Yeah. It's just cheap drama. Yeah. I think maybe it, it's similar uh, just to what Liz just said about how Beverly became more of a character after Wesley left. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's similar to that. Whereas like Luxana's, uh, best episodes, or at least the ones that everybody considers her best mm-hmm. episodes, are 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 Half a Life, are uh, the Odo ones. I mean, mm-hmm. did you say Swine Nuns? Deanna doesn't even appear in, mm-hmm. and in Half a Life, and even in Dark Page, it's like Deanna is there, and it, it, they 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 have good conversations. Like I will say, they. I think oh yeah. Deanna and and Luxana, and it's also like you know, it's not like either Troy is a well written character <laughs> um, in, in comparison to say Picard. So yeah. you know, but it is like it's like when they when they think about you know they're like oh we had this idea for this this crazy mom character and we bring her in and and she does all this stuff but they don't give her any like real meaty role mm-hmm. until they think of her outside of the relationship mm. with Deanna. Yeah. And it's sort of like they could have come up with a meaty way to make that relationship go instead. Yeah. Watching Dark Page, I realized I really struggle with Loxana because I should love her. She's basically a combination of misogynistic stereotypes <laughs> and my rule says I should love her because of that. But there are, there are like three factors that, that hold me back. One is 
I have trouble separating the misogyny behind the character from the vivacious and intelligent person she's meant to be. Uh, two, I don't think Majel Barrett is a good enough actor to carry the dramatic aspects of Loxana. Like, in Dark Page, she's crying and she's having a breakdown, but she's just making sobbing noises. There's nothing in her face to convey that emotional distress. Like, I think she's a, an okay actress, but she's a very 60s actress and she's just, this particular role, it, the dramatic parts are not her forte. And finally, I just, she's so often played for laughs, but she treats mm -hmm. people really badly. Like, she completely disrespects Deanna's boundaries and her personhood. She is just a walking sexual harassment lawsuit. She <laughs> almost comes across as a bit of a narcissist. And, and then I was watching The Good Wife, which I'm slowly working my way through, and uh, the main character's mother turns up. She's played by Stockard Channing, and she's basically a Luxana Troy figure in that she's vivacious and flirtatious and incredibly incredibly charismatic and she's been married a bunch of times she's an incorrigible flirt but as much as it's a joy to see her and you know Stockard Channing could play any role it, you you kind of see the negative impact she has on her family and it's not just played for laughs and I think that's something that they missed with Luxana they didn't realize how deep the impact of her behaviour could go. Again, because she's a caricature, not a character they take seriously. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good way of putting it. I, I love I love the idea of redeeming Loxana and I love how she's been adopted by feminist fandom. But mm -hmm. I have a lot of trouble with her as she is on screen. Hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's a lot that I really do like about her character because she is, you know, as an older woman, as a mother, still mm. being so full of personality and so bold and just... And so sexy. Yeah, like being a sexual person at all, being someone with sexual desires, being attractive and bold and all of these things and that's so great but I mean you're yeah. absolutely right there's so much where she's kind of a terrible person and pushy and uh mean and you know they're writing I mean it's could be attributed a lot to the writing and to a lot of oh, sexism absolutely. and the way that she's used but it's it's still there I mean that still is kind of in the way sometimes of appreciating her so I appreciate her a lot of ways but that totally makes sense to me that you would struggle with it in that way so much of Loxana is just the writers going an old lady wants to have sex <laughs> gross yeah it, it's... who would want that oh my god no one could possibly be attracted to this woman she's just yeah. out of control which is a really strange way to write about your boss's wife like Jean Roddenberry <laughs> seemed to be really into this characterization of Loxana and like this is where it gets weird for me behind the scenes. It the is. third season episode looks of Menage a Troy, mm -hmm. Menage a Trois, was written, co-written by Gene Roddenberry's mistress with a role highly sexualizing his wife. And I'm like, I, I, I just have questions. <laughs> well... <laughs> 
I don't know if I have answers, but yeah. <laughs> that is, it makes you wonder. I think once again, the answer is misogyny. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's usually the answer, let's be honest. Yeah, yeah. Let's uh, move on to another guest star mom. Mm-hmm. Yes. How about Keiko? Keiko is another one where I feel like there's a disconnect between the writing and how we want the character to be, but I think it's much easier to get past the problematic aspects of the writing and to appreciate her as a character who never quite got her due. Yeah. Keiko is really brought down by the fact that from introduction, she is sort of a... She's used in the plot to be in the way and, and, uh, and a conflict. Like yes. Her, her entire personality for a long time is just sort of conflict. And so, you know, we end up having to, as you, as you say, like who we want her to be and who we can sort of make her in fan fiction or in our head mm. is a much better character than what are we what we're presented with simply because she she just she's always you know squabbling with miles and and uh, and other other people you know that's that's her role because she's more of a plot device than a person for yeah. most of her run unfortunately but she is one of the you know we see her kids grow up you know sort of in the background mm-hmm. but it, it is sort of interesting to think of her as you know here is someone in the future with a family family is clearly very important to her she's always trying mm-hmm. to like create a sense of, a of traditions and home yeah no matter where she is she's going to create some kind of connections to her heritage for her children and her husband's heritage like mm-hmm. she's an she's there's a lot there that could have been explored and wasn't. <laughs> and I just, you know, I, there's so much potential yeah. in those characters that ends up being Miles is always suffering the, and, you know, and Keiko is always... Uh, Nagging. Yeah, not, not helping, I guess. So it's, it's, uh, it's upsetting. It often seems to me like the whole O'Brien marriage is written by people who aren't married and don't really want to be married. Like (laughs) there's a scene where she comes back. She's, you know, she's been away for a while and Miles and Julian are really missing their time hanging out being bros. And instead of just saying, hey, you don't have to hang around and be a husband full time. You can do your own thing. Keiko sort of has to manipulate a situation where they can hang out. And that, to yeah. me, felt very... It was very strange writing because that is... One, I don't think that a healthy marriage works like that. And I think that's why I think this is written by people who aren't married. I, also, I've never been married, but I'm, you know... <laughs> I, I have friends who are married. They seem to have their own lives apart from each other. Mm-hmm. And it just it just felt needlessly convoluted when you could just have a conversation. Yeah. It's like... A, um you know the scene in the uh, fourth Harry Potter movie where like Hermione is talking to Ron and Harry, but they're not talking to each other, and she's mm. just like, "I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to put up with this anymore." And it's sort of like if Hermione can, after like two lines, figure out that she doesn't want to do this anymore. I feel like Keiko should be able to be like, "Look, 
Just let's be adults. Let, let's <laughs> actually have a conversation instead of of doing all this this subterfuge. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, their their entire relationship seems to be based on a communication breakdown. Like, they don't communicate. Data's day is about the build up to their wedding, and it's about Data running messages between them. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so it's it's just. But, you know, Keiko is one of the few examples we have of uh, a civilian working mother. And that's yeah. really cool. Mm-hmm. Right. And we see that, like, even though she has a young child, when they first move to Deep Space Nine, she still needs to work. And she's not demonized for that. There's no, oh, no, Molly is in yeah. Bajoran daycare. <laughs> yeah. She can't work in her field, so she finds somewhere to be. I mean, there's really... Like, Keiko is, is someone who adapts to whatever situation that she's stuck in. You know, that, that certainly happens mm. constantly. You know, there's mm-hmm. a war and, there, like, there's all sorts of things that, that she has to... You know, she, gets to <laughs> she gets to suffer right along with Master Prime. <laughs> but it's just... Uh, I, I just don't think we ever really get her point of view. No, no. And I think that's the problem. Like one of the most interesting, one of her most interesting episodes is the one where she's possessed by a par race. And that's not her. Right. Mm. Hmm. But no, it is, it's cool that like when she's going down to Bajor for these uh, months long bot- botanity, mm-hmm. botanical missions, she takes Molly. You know, I think, I think that gives us a glimpse of world building where the Federation and Bajor will accommodate young children mm. in, in the workplace. And I think that's really cool. Even though I also realize that it's just because they didn't want to write Miles. Having to take care of his children. Having to take care of his kids. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I assume that for Father's Day we'll do the dead big dads of Star Trek. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Who is the worst father? You know, I don't think O'Brien is a bad dad, but we only see him doing the day-to-day stuff with Molly if something has happened to Keiko. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. I mean, in my ideal world, then, you know, if I were writing Star Trek, we would be able to see, you know, sometimes Keiko takes Molly and she's got care of her, but then other times she doesn't and Miles could and then it would be more shared. Mm. And, you know, if if I was yeah. writing Star Trek, yeah. you know, but there's a lot of things that I might change. <laughs> Yeah, I just I just want a comedy episode about Miles and Julian looking after Molly for a few weeks and bringing her along to the Battle of Britain. Aww, <laughs> that would be adorable. <laughs> That's so cute. They they it, really missed like a trick a, here. Two men and a toddler, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Plus, can you imagine how delighted the fandom would be if we had footage of Julian hanging out with a, a, a toddler, a young Absolutely. child? Like ovaries all over the internet. <laughs> oh, oh! But if they had done that, it would have been so full of like bumbling dad stereotypes. But oh, it could yeah, have it been so good if they did that now. It would be just yeah, cute and I would we'd eat that up. <laughs> yeah, maybe someone just needs to write that fic, but it's better mm-hmm. that it didn't happen in fa- in canon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we can all imagine the the work trips that Keiko took down to. Bajor that we yeah. didn't see where that did happen. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, Garrick has to babysit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that would be great. <laughs> I want to see that story. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my. Uh, 
speaking of Deep Space Nine mums or moms, uh, um, let's talk about Ishka. Yeah. She was mentioned uh, when I asked for, you know, who do you want us to talk about? And uh, Sam, who uh, was one of our guests er on an earlier episode, said, Quark's mom, Ishka. Well, she's an interesting mother character because she's once again uh, vivacious and rule-breaking and sexy, but she's also a Ferengi, so she's kind of grotesque and horrifying at the same time. And I think Mm -hmm. that's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ferengi women are not particularly mm-hmm. sexy to human eyes. Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of frees up the character to do things that they wouldn't have done with her mm. um, if they felt the need for her to seem attractive or sexy to, to human eyes. Yeah. I, I generally skip the Ferengi episodes because mm. I, I'm just not a Ferengi fan and the nudity is really uncomfortable with Ishka where she like takes her clothes off so Rom can sit and like, like lie with her, his head in her lap. Oh, like, that's so weird. I know. It's really cool and alien. It, um, just it's don't want to yeah. think about it. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm Ferengi phobic, maybe. <laughs> it's okay. It took me a little while to get into all of the Ferengi episodes. I really do generally enjoy them. Um, but yeah, some of the nudity stuff gets weird. <laughs> I don't actually need to see that. <laughs> yeah. Like the, just the, the whole female being nude all the time thing. Yeah. No, I don't know. no. I mean, my, that's <laughs> what I, I really appreciate about um, Ishka and her episodes is that they use that character to to um, build the world and the culture of the Ferengi. Yeah. And and change it at the same time, you know. Yeah. And it's I super think that cool. that's it's really smart storytelling that. You know, it's like, thank goodness Ishka is, is reforming uh, the, yeah. the Grand Nagus and, uh, and all of Ferengar because yikes. I mean, like, yeah. it, Indeed. Wearing, wearing clothes and uh, I think it like speaking to uh, people that are not part of your family and leaving the home world. Like, all of these things were not allowed to Ferengi women. And <laughs> that's... Mm. There's there's space travelers and this is what what they're doing. Yeah, it seems like it would be bad for business to lock out fifty percent of your population. But that's Ishka's whole point. Yeah, you know? that's her whole thing is that she's actually really good at making money. Mm-hmm. Better than Quark. And uh, <laughs> and so, you know, it, they're leaving money on the table as they're always mm-hmm. saying. Like, and that's what that's but we say that we say that in our society too. It's sort of like why mm. why do you make all these action figures of the male characters when so many women want to buy mm-hmm. the women characters too? And frankly, so do the men. So yeah, so yeah. they're again just leaving money on the table instead of creating the the market. Yeah. Oh. I guess even capitalism can't trump sexism sometimes. Yes, I guess. <laughs> That's just so but I think that really does show like what interesting things they did with this character. I mean, they develop her and it develops the family and it develops this whole world and we get this deeper look at it and it gets to evolve and change. And that's mm. so fascinating to see. And they did a, I think they actually did a lot of really good things with her and with how yeah. she's used in the storyline. It's really great. And how they they show the difference between how Quark relates to her and how Rom relates to her is sort of like the the traditional values versus the progressive values, mm-hmm. all in this one family. 
And Quark is the older brother who has to be the responsible one, even when he's not very good at it, because that's how, you know, that's the expectation that's on him. I, I feel yeah. like it's not a competition, but Ishka does a lot of the same things as Loxana does, but much more successfully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, and it could be simple as it's whatever five yeah. years later. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. it's like mm-hmm. they, they, they're A, better at writing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> at all <laughs> yes and be better you know better at understanding what they were actually trying to do with that character mm-hmm. like i really mm-hmm. think that luxana troy was just a joke like that was mm-hmm. yeah that was yeah. what she was supposed to be doing she was supposed to be you know this foil for deanna mm-hmm. and someone for the audience to laugh at and also enjoy but she wasn't someone who was supposed to do anything to her society mm. or to the, the plot or the story. It was just mm-hmm. sort of, you know, it wasn't, she wasn't active in, yeah, yeah. in, a, in a role. Um, she was just sort of being, she mm-hmm. was. Even, even in her diplomatic career. Right, yeah. yeah. Like we never get to see her do any diplomacy. Like she's an ambassador. We should <laughs> like, it'd be cool to see. It's mostly an excuse to get her onto the Enterprise yeah. or Deep Space yeah. Nine. And she, like Dark Page, it really struck me that she's been working with these people and teaching them to physically speak and she's learned their unique type of telepathy. And I don't know if that's the first time we've seen that, but it's the first time, it's certainly a key moment where we mm-hmm. see her skills as an ambassador and that there's a lot more to her than being an overbearing flirt. But, but Ishka does get to actually create change and, yes. and, and do something, not only in that episode or in that story but you know a wider like even beyond the series itself she's Mm -hmm. she's out there doing stuff so yeah yeah i think also ishka is like works better than laksana because as we were saying she is an alien and she's very alien she's covered in latex she doesn't have to be sexy Mm -hmm. yeah right and it's depressing that this sort of separates like this separation from sexuality uh, or sexual appeal to a human audience is what gives her space to be a more rounded character. I'm always reminded of Marina Sirtis saying that once she finally was wearing the same uniform as everyone else, she also got to be smart. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's sort of the same thing where it's like once the p- purpose of the character is not to attract people. She can be challenging. She can, mm-hmm. yeah, she can, uh, yeah, so, sad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, Samantha Wildman is another mother who is, is, doesn't get to mother her own kid. They nope. literally <laughs> forgot she was alive. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, Naomi Wildman, who I love, I, she's an absolutely excellent character, and I love everything that she has with mm. Seven and with Neelix and with Janeway, but she has all these scenes with Seven and Neelix and Janeway <laughs> and not Samantha. You know, I love, it's the same with Wesley and Picard. I love mm-hmm. these relationships. I just don't see that they needed to come at the expense of the relationships with their parents. Yeah. Particularly them, like uh, Samantha and Beverly are the only single parents we see actively ongoing on the series. And I just think it sends a really terrible message that they don't get to be the parent. Yeah. With Samantha especially, because she's a single mom, mm-hmm. 
you could have like you could we could see her with Seven with Neelix, mm. you know, like a co-parenting, you know, because she doesn't make I she doesn't want to take care of the baby by herself. That makes perfect sense. And again, Absolutely. in this like utopian society, I would like mm-hmm. to believe that children are communal responsibility, and that's great. Like that's what I want it to be like. Yeah. But we, it's it's not. It's like sort of she handed off her kid, um, and. And we don't know why. We don't know anything. That, you know, there's there's one episode where she's on the away mission and might die. And that's, mm-hmm. like, the only time we ever get any kind of tension. Literally forgot the character was alive. <laughs> well, and it even fits the concept of Voyager so well to have it be so communal. You know, you've got this very small yeah. group of people and they aren't, they aren't changing. Like, people aren't transferring off the ship and getting new people. Like, you've got this very family atmosphere and they... I mean, they use that in a lot of the time, but it would really fit that particularly well for it to, you know, to have the other people helping parent, but to also have Samantha. <laughs> like, there's no reason why she wouldn't be involved. <laughs> no, Unless because... you just aren't valuing motherhood that much, which, you know. Yeah. But I mean, she does at least have relationships with maternal figures. You know, it isn't that she's only having relationships and being guided by men, like yeah. you kind of see with Wesley in TNG. It, it does include They're women. Getting better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> having I mean, more yeah. female characters helps. <laughs> Do we, we don't even really know anything about Samantha Wildman. Like she's, no, we, we really don't. I don't even know what she does. <laughs> she's just yeah, what's of, her, her position? I don't even know. What uniform does she wear? Science? Is it blue? It's blue. Or yellow. And blue. <laughs> She is something along the lines of um, space animals and something like that. Um, I'm drawing drawing a blank, but she first appeared in Elogium because she was reporting on the space thing that's trying to mate with Voyager. Hmm. (laughs) I guess she kind of fits into something that a lot of them do that we meant you mentioned before. Calling oh no, my brain is totally going blank. Um, That it's a she's a plot device and not a person mm. like she's there so that they can have this drama over someone giving birth after they've been lost on the other side of the galaxy. And then once that's resolved, she disappears and yeah. isn't important anymore and is never really important as a person. We don't know anything about her. It's just, there's drama because she's pregnant Yeah, and that's it. It's a plot device. Yep. Which is, I guess the, uh, the theme here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It really, really is, unfortunately. uh, But, like, Gabriel Burnham is a plot Mm -hmm. device, but she feels like a person. Mm -hmm. With Discovery, I mean, because of the improved writing and just the passage of time and the way that, you know, shows deal with female characters improving so Mm. much over that time, you get mothers who are much more developed and better written. And, yeah, like, everyone's going to play a role in how they're continuing and moving the plot forward but that doesn't mean to the exclusion of being a developed character and being more rounded and that's i mean it's a a huge improvement over what we had seen before we get a lot more discovery i also think that in discovery motherhood was actually one of the themes like yes that absolutely important to the plot and the story and the narrative that they were telling that michael had Mm -hmm. these mothers Mm-hmm. And this was another uh, one on our Twitter, uh, you know, said, 
my faves are Michael Burnham and her three moms. And <laughs> yes, you know, me too. <laughs> um, and so is it really three? Uh, I think it's actually yes. four. <laughs> Both Georgios. So, uh, okay. Both, yes. yeah. And her biological mother and her adoptive mother. <laughs> so many moms. And I mean, I is, so I just to, to backtrack slightly mm-hmm. to Beverly Crusher, mm-hmm. I really looked up to Beverly Crusher at, as a mom mm-hmm. when I was watching TNG as a child um, because she, my, my mother was a redheaded nurse mm-hmm. and so, oh, and, wow. and she died. <laughs> and so Beverly Crusher was like, you know, I sort of glomped onto her as this idea of mother um, because she was a mom and she was a medical person and she had red hair. And so I was like, this is, this is, you know, this is an, and this is how I can, can watch this show as, you know, this mm. is my mom in this show. Mm-hmm. And she was really important to me. I went to Brandeis University because Gates McFadden went to Brandeis University. Like, she was a role model for me. Mm-hmm. But not, like, not as a mom and not even really, at, like, I didn't, I just, it was just sort of the idea of a mom <laughs> than, mm. than actually the mom. <laughs> I, you know, I, I love that the Discovery's second season was so much about mothers because it was like, it was like, yo, yeah, 30 years later, Star Trek is finally <laughs> actually filling this void for me. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It's, it's a little bit late for me, yeah. but I still appreciate the, you know, attention to, oh, this is actually a really important relationship Mm -hmm. specifically between Mm. mothers and daughters like it's really important that Michael didn't you know that she lost her mom and that even though she had other Mm -hmm. moms when she got Gabriel Gabrielle back oops (laughs) she got Gabrielle back it was Mm -hmm. it was still it was like this you know, seminal important relationship mm-hmm. that, that mm. she she got to explore when she thought it had been lost, you know. Mm-hmm. So I just and you know her other mothers are not are not threatened, threatened by that. Mm-hmm. They're all you know allowed to be different. You know they're different yes. as people and they're different as mothers. And mothering, being a mother in general is so cl- more clearly valued and seen as important and powerful and like I just love the moment of um Laurel you know declaring herself the mother of the Klingon empire and just showing this as a powerful role as a meaningful role and I think that mm. was so cool and I loved it and now we're not was... gonna see any more of that I guess <laughs> which is very uh disappointing petition for a Laurel series <laughs> Gets there's so much that they could have done with that that's such a cool concept and I wanted to see more of that and... if the Laurel series begins with her beaming cat off the exploding <laughs> of the Enterprise I'm good to go fair we're still mad about cat it's yeah. going to be a regular feature of this mm-hmm. co- podcast going forward <laughs> I can relate this I, know. I mean talk about things that I'm disappointed we won't get to explore more in Discovery yeah. Yeah. Oh, so disappointing. 
So there are a few uh, essays that I'm going to link in our show notes. One is by uh, Forest of Glory on Dreamwith, posted on Lady Business. It's actually part of the Hugo packet called Where Have All the SFF Moms Gone? Uh, and that was posted in 2018. And it's basically about the fact that so few characters in science fiction and fantasy either have mothers or are mothers. And that sort mm-hmm. of brings me back to a quote by Lois McMaster Bujols uh, that she wrote her hero with a, uh, as a character with a prominent mother who plays her own part because, mm-hmm. and this is the quote, Han Solo never had to call his mother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this is why... Like, the first place I start with when I'm headcanoning a character like Lorca is who is his mother or mm. mothers, as my uh-huh. as my headcanon uh-huh. says. Because even these heroic male dudes, and I realise that Lorca's <laughs> heroism is only in my head. Um, <laughs> it's even, implied even they... to have existed in his prime <laughs> yeah, form. Yeah, we can, we can infer it. Uh-huh. But, you know, Lorca, Pike, uh, Picard... Uh-huh. They all have mm-hmm. mothers, or had mothers. You know. Can I? Is this where I get to complain about Star Trek two thousand nine? <laughs> please, please. <laughs> Which I love. I will say I really like the Kelvin mm-hmm. movies, and that first one is really well put together. It's very well presented. Mm-hmm. It's tight. I, I I really enjoy it. I love the changes that they make. Mm-hmm. However, <laughs> so Kirk is defined by the lack of his father mm-hmm. throughout the trilogy instead of the the presence reality of his mother. <laughs> yeah the presence of his mother mm-hmm. she is alive she you know he says in the third one that he was gonna call her on his birthday they still have a relationship mm-hmm. we never see it we never no, hear him. It has no about influence it. on anything. There, exactly. There's mm. no influence on anything. Whereas that he doesn't have a father is this gaping yeah. hole of, of characterization. Which again makes me you know, I love that version of Kirk because of that characterization. But as we've been saying, it didn't have to happen at the expense of mm-hmm. A relationship with a visible relationship with his mother, and his stepfather is is more prominent a figure in his childhood that we see than right. his mother, which raises all sorts of questions. You know, was his relationship with his mother actually that good that she married this guy who doesn't seem to like her son? But that's an interesting story, yeah. and, and it's just thrown in the background, mm-hmm. right? And then in the same movie, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Spock, who who we do see. Who you know the the relationship with Spock's mom is is it the most important relationship in his life in pretty much every version of Spock, which is mm. great. Mm-hmm. But in that same movie, she dies, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like on one hand it's like oh I get it this is like a parallel <laughs> Kirk and Spock have you know, similar losses that they have to deal with, and that's interesting. But we hear more about Kirk's dead dad than we do about Spock's dead mom, even though we see her die on screen. And she was a known and beloved character going back to the 60s. -hmm. Like, we needed to mourn Amanda Grayson. So, 
so yeah, that's my that's my issue with that movie. No, I think that's a reasonable issue to have. <laughs> Elliot de Bodard in an essay uh, titled Horrific Pregnancies and Dead Mothers, Motherhood in Fiction and How I Learned to Love My Pregnant Character describes it as, what is it? People sha- a people-shaped hole, or a person-shaped hole, I suppose, in the singular. And she's written two essays on this subject, and they're both really interesting. Mm-hmm. I will uh, link them in the show notes. Uh, but I'll quote, To put it bluntly, mothers are just not there. While pregnancy is either monstrous or sacred, either body horror or the delivery of the chosen child, motherhood is defined by its absence. We aren't characters. We are people-shaped holes. We are empty spaces or hollowed-out characters whose sole purpose, when the story bothers to give us one, is to erase ourselves for the sake of our children. Yeah. Powerful. That's that's strong, yes. So speaking of person-shaped holes, um, so this is one of the ones that I think of when I think about, you know, the the absence of mothers in Star Trek and the the, um, lack of importance put on them in comparison to fathers. So Tom Paris has a very important relationship with his father and how that affects the story. Um, I mean, we don't actually see his dad that much, but he has a huge impact on his son and it has a huge impact on a lot of storylines that we get to see with them. And presumably he had a mother. She's never mentioned (laughs) ever. One of the criticisms of his father is how absent he was in Tom's life. Mm. So you would think there was someone else there that might've had an impact not mentioned. And it just really is highlighted Jerry Taylor wrote a book of essentially background stories about all of the Voyager characters. Mm. And in the Tom story, I don't know if you guys have read this book. It's not a very good book. I don't love it. It's, yeah, uh, (laughs) Pathways. In the Tom chapter, we get, you know, some of his backstory. And we do see both of his parents, and they're both there. And his mother even has lines. But they don't bother (laughs) to give her a name. Because it doesn't matter. Because she doesn't matter. She's just this blank stand-in of a person mm. because she has to exist. She's a uterus to produce a character. And that's it. <laughs> and like, really? <laughs> really, guys? <Yeah>. Like, <laughs> did she have any impact on her son's life at all? Like, I can't tell. I, I Presumably not. And that's, it just is such a recurring thing that yeah. you see throughout mm. the years of Star Trek that this role is absent and unimportant and unvalued and I think that's just so unfortunate and has been so great to see it valued more in Discovery. Yeah. I've read some of the more recent Voyager tie-ins or, you know, the post-Voyager series. And there was one where both Janeway's mother and Tom's mother have scenes where they sit silently in their kitchen and worry about their adult children. And I'm like, I I just... So... You know, you have these adult, middle-aged, in one case, children who have children of their own, in Tom's case. You're living in this post-scarcity utopia. Wouldn't you do something with your life after that? Like, would you study again? Would you pursue a career? Would you take up a hobby? Other than sitting in your kitchen and worrying about your child? Like... Don't get me wrong. I, I would be absolute. I would. I would exist in a permanent state of terror if I had a child in Starfleet or any relative in Starfleet. But you can't. You can't just sit there doing nothing with your life. And so I feel like 
um, particularly when Jerry Taylor is writing, there's not a lot of thought given to what family life and career path mm-hmm. and child raising looks like in the Federation, where the pressures of money are gone and presumably people live a lot longer. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can have your kid in your 20s and then resume a career later and it will be a really good career. Or you can take years out to raise a child or you can just work through and the child will be in a ex- really good creche. You know, I, I, I just... My headcanon is that all of these options are there and they're all good. Maybe, just maybe, your partner or husband will take time off <laughs> what? and raise a child. I know, it sounds well, fake, but okay. And- <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm like, that's the interesting thing about Star Trek. Like, there's so many options and no one, we never really see it explored yeah. what that really means. So if, yeah, yeah so post-scarcity society, like, you don't really need to make money. So, like, what does that mean about... Yeah. The arc of your life, like, do, is it common for people to just not work for a while while they're raising their kids? Because you don't have to, and your needs will be taken care yeah. of. Or is it just so much easier? Because why would you need to work full time? You can just work a little and have a lot of time left for your kid and split that with your partner because you're both there and it's not going to harm your career because the meaning of your career is different. You aren't going to lose your ability to care for yourself because you're working less hours. You know, there's so many options and I want to see that explored so much. And it's, that's not in their heads. That's not what they're thinking about when they're thinking about what this world looks like because they're not thinking about families or mothers. Right. If you're a Starfleet officer and you take a few years off for paternity leave to raise your kids and then you go back to full-time work, yes, you might make captain a bit later, But there's no financial penalty for that. It just means you've made a compromise and it's a compromise that people respect because parenting is an important and valid job. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's... I I think Jerry Taylor in particular was not interested in looking at the future of family life and a lot of Voyager suffered because of that because she was the one driving the backstory and the domestic stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of the men who've been in charge of Star Trek have had the same oversight, but, like, she's just such an unfortunate product of her time, I think. Like, she... Mm. Like, the the other book that she wrote, Mosaic, which is about Janeway, it is infuriating to me. It's one of those things that makes me want (laughs) to throw something against the wall. Um, Because you've got this whole book Mm. focused on this you know, strong, competent female character. And it's all Mm. about her seeking validation from men. And I just want to throw something. But like, I mean, I I don't know Jerry Taylor, but I just have to imagine that her getting where she was in her career and being successful, like she's always been the only woman in the room. And that's what she knows. So you've got this Janeway book and Janeway is the only meaningful woman in the story. It's all about her Mm. relationships with men. And I, I... just have to imagine that that's a reflection of what Jerry Taylor knew. Like, and I I want to be imagining more because we're imagining this future (laughs) and that it'll be different from what it is now, but it's, we're all impacted by our lives. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think that happens sometimes to the detriment of the story and the characters and, you know, yeah, it's right. It's difficult to imagine beyond ourselves. It yeah. is. And Taylor, her background was not in science fiction before she came to Next Gen. And I only realized recently she is only a year younger than DC Fontana, who worked on the original series. So I, she is huh. basically a whole generation older 
than I mm. thought than I ever realized. And, and so suddenly a lot of her work mm-hmm. and a lot of her feminism made a lot more sense to me. She graduated college the year my mother was born. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> I've just revealed my mother's age. Uh, but I also think that Fontana was more interested, like she was a product of her time and she was mm-hmm. working primarily in the 60s, but her later work, she did four episodes, I think, of Babylon 5. They're all really good and most of them are about relationships between women and women playing roles in their societies. And, and so you consider like Fontana's take on motherhood in uh, Friday's Child, where this woman doesn't really want to have a baby. She's been married and impregnated as, as part of a sort of tribal treaty. Mm-hmm. And Fontana's script involved her having the baby and then basically using it as a human shield because Fontana wanted to depict a woman who was not magically transformed by motherhood into mm-hmm. a soft and gentle person who loved her baby. Mm-hmm. And Roddenberry rewrote that. <laughs> I, I feel like even now that would be a really controversial depiction yeah, of motherhood. it would. But I think Fontana's well, I imagination mean, took her there. You know, that, That's the key thing. To, to use something that's contemporary, Cersei Lannister is allowed to be horrible in every way except in relation to her children. Yes. She has yes. to love her children. That's, you know, like yes. that's, that's the thing. <laughs> that that you, you can only, like that would make her a real monster. Like, mm-hmm. you know, she's a monster, but she's, she has this one good thing about her. And if she didn't have that one good mm. thing about her, we wouldn't be able to relate to her in any way. We wouldn't be able to see her as a person. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's a bit of that with Mira Georgiou where her, her initial sole redeeming feature is that she's a genocidal dictator <laughs> who really loves her daughter. Mm-hmm. But because she is in a better written show at this point, sorry, Game of Thrones, you tried. <laughs> um, and she's played by Michelle Yeoh, who just adds so much to any script. Mm-hmm. She, There's more to it than that. And I think also Discovery has treated that relationship as very important, whereas mm-hmm. Cersei's children, uh, I forgot that they, they forgot were who there. They were too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I, I saw a reference to Joffrey and I was like, who? What? <laughs> it's been a long eight years. Well, I mean, I think the interesting thing about Mira Giorgio specifically, I mean, I think it totally makes sense. Like, genocidal dictators are terrible, but they do usually care about certain people. They care about their families. They care about, like, their... I I think that's accurate. You yeah. Know? Um, there's no reason, just because someone is terrible in a lot of ways, doesn't mean that they aren't nice to the people that they like. So I think yeah. that that's... Yeah, Hitler loved his job. Yeah, presumably. So I think that makes sense and I think that makes sense for the starting point to start to see her transform into Mm. a better person and that's you know that's the crack and that's where you can start that and tear into that and see her evolve but I mean you know it does sort of make you wonder so I mean in Discovery like we see all of Michael's various maternal figures and we do Mm. get to see more variety like when Michael finally sees her biological mother again her mom is very cold to her and that is very obviously very hard for Michael and it's kind of hard to watch because we expect mothers to be soft and gentle and caring and she is not that Mm. but 
at the same time, like in the end, like ultimately we do get that. Like we get her saying she was always there. She was watching her and they do get to have their emotional moments. And I don't think you like, it's wrong that they did that, but it still does fit that that's the ultimate sin that no mother can commit. So, I mean, we definitely get a lot more variation and range in the mothers and they aren't all the soft, gentle ones. Mm. So that's really great to see, but I mean, we're always, maybe we're always going to have that limit. It's just hard for them to. Well, I think, yeah, as a society, and I feel like this is probably quite universal, it's really hard to have sympathy for mothers who don't treat their children well. It's hard to have sympathy for anyone who doesn't treat treat their children well, but I, I, this is terrible. Maybe it is easier to forgive a, a man who mistreats his chil- children than a woman, or at least to, to write them off as going, oh, well, men. <laughs> I think it's, it's considered instinctual in women that, mm. that there's, like, this idea that a woman has the, you know, that they, they are, that all women are, are capable of being mothers and, and that once mm. they are, they become maternal. Whereas yes. men, like they don't have that burden on them. It it's not it's not a given that once a man is a father, they will become paternal, paternal, mm-hmm. uh, you know, transformed by their child. But mm. it's it's a it's a, a stereotype, I guess, that that w- women are nurturing and 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 once they have a child to nurture, that that's that's becomes their default almost mm. like anything else about them is becomes uh, secondary to now I am the mother. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think like even in societies where it's normal for you to hand off your child to a wet nurse or send them to boarding school or have them more or less raised by servants, which, you know, has happened throughout society, there's still an expectation that the mother will love her children and will protect them and, yeah, yeah, give and give and give. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, the way that it is treated different is interesting because, yeah, like, I mean, I don't think that it's necessarily wrong to, like, judge them badly if they aren't good mothers and if they don't love their kids, but it's different than the way that we see fathers and that they're more redeemable despite being bad fathers Mm. or being absent fathers. And so I guess, like, part of me does want to be able to see that, like, for that to at least be possible. Like, maybe it would be hard to make them sympathetic and likable because that is kind of a negative trait. Or maybe we just need to judge the fathers more harshly and everyone should be judged equally (laughs) for their bad parenting. (laughs) Uh, I saw Harry Potter and the Cursed Child yesterday and no spoilers, but uh, uh, Harry basically achieves Sarek levels of bad, bad-ness. Sarek is such a terrible father. Oh my God. He's He's such a, what a disaster. (laughs) My whole groove, my whole id is about characters who have children and legacy characters and trying to live up to the the standards set by mm. your parents and ancestors mm. so cursed child was just so appealing to me mm-hmm. and i really liked that this is this is very much a play about fathers and sons but Ginny plays a very prominent role mm-hmm. as albus severus's mother and i really liked that but i cannot 
cannot imagine any work of media anywhere where a woman would be as bad a mother to her child as Harry is to Albus Mm -hmm. and still be forgiven and redeemed and beloved by the end. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember when that came out and everybody was like, this assassinates Harry's character. So oh, it definitely makes it more complicated. There's that. <laughs> People are not entirely forgiving of bad dads. And, you know, there's a lot of Han Solo is such a bad dad to Kylo that, you know, he ran away to join the First Order. But Leia got a lot more criticism. So, you know, I think we don't not blame fathers for, the, for their failures, but we blame mothers more. Yeah. And I, I think we saw that in season two of Discovery where people were like, oh, well, we take it for granted that Sarek is a bad dad, but we do need Amanda to be perfect. Yeah. And she yeah. was complicated. Yeah. Which I loved, but, you know, I, I do think it is hard to see imperfect mothers. Mm-hmm. But I think also the lack of them in our media makes it hard. Yeah, right, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I feel like as a mother (laughs) who feels pretty imperfect most of the time, (laughs) it would be less damaging (laughs) for for it to be okay. You know? Yeah. Like. Well, and to just see more of a range and for the. the, Right. The average to not be so skewed. Right. It's and the like standard to be so a, high. A perfect mom or you're a dead mom in media. Like, mm, like those yeah. are the options. Only there's, options. There's not, there's not a, uh, you know, there's, there, they, they, that's why Amanda being complicated and, and making poor choices is, is so powerful to me. Mm-hmm. Mm. And then we have a set of interestingly imperfect mothers. We have Amsha Bashir. We have uh, Janice Teagan, uh, mother of Esri Dax, mm-hmm. uh, T'Pol's mother, who I'm not up to in canon, but apparently she's that Teles, type of character. Yes, yes she Teles. is. And in the, the Discovery novels, we have Siobhan Tilly, who is glimpsed in one mm-hmm. of the short treks. And I just want to say I love every single thing about Siobhan Tilly, but she is terrible. <laughs> and that's kind of how I feel about that, that whole lineup of imperfect mothers. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, that's true. That, but you know what? It's uh, that they they're not supportive of their mm. daughter's choices or son. Something that seems to unite all of them, I realized as I was reading out that list, is that they they love their children, but the child they love is not the child they have. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and you know the Bashirs take that to an absolute mm-hmm. extreme. <laughs> yeah. One of the reasons that I really like Siobhan Tilly in the novel The Way to the Stars mm-hmm. is that she is overbearing and she has very high expectations and she doesn't really see Tilly for the person that she is. She wants Tilly to be a diplomat mm-hmm. and that's not really Tilly's strength. <laughs> but she loves her so much. And it's kind of a very contemporary take on the imperfect mother because she's extremely career-driven and busy, but she's also more or less a a helicopter parent and (laughs) Tilly thrives when she's left alone to do her own thing although I mean she might do better with the attention if it was more tailored to her interests and more positive and supportive instead of this is the only way do exactly this and if you don't you will fail at everything (laughs) (laughs) 
Although I only read the first part of that book, I didn't finish it, so I don't know exactly how that might evolve, but... Spoilers, it ends with Tilly running away from her boarding school and having adventures on her own, and she ends up finishing her education living on her dad's starship and basically being basically being Wesley, which is great. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, that's sort of how all of their stories end, you know? Like, yeah. Bashir runs away to the frontier, mm-hmm. and T'Pol runs away to deep space with mm-hmm. humans. Humans. Yikes. <laughs> And Esri doesn't really mean to run away, but she does end up running away and being more happy there. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting where it's like, if you're, if you're with this, uh, I guess, overbearing, disapproving parental mom, uh, the, only, the only way you grow is to get away from her sort of true for a lot of people in real life like Mm -hmm. you grow up you go to college you create space between you and your family of origin and And that gives you the room to keep growing on your own and to build a fresh relationship with them that's better yeah like that's sort of how it's meant to go so you know you said you called her a helicopter mom and it's sort of like and that's why the helicopter moms need to let their kids go when they get to a certain stage of life yeah um so that they they can move mm-hmm. past mm. that but one of the reasons that i liked that book so much is that tilly's dad is also at fault for leaving and putting his career first over tilly's needs you know he's taken off on this years long expedition mm-hmm. and so the fact that it's not just the mother being demonized that both parents genuinely love her and want the best for her but have both gone about it badly, mm-hmm. I think. It just felt more balanced than previous depictions. Well, that's interesting. Maybe I'll have to finish reading that book. It very bad, badly needed more editing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I'd enjoyed it so far, but, like, I don't know. I feel like at this point in my life, I'm just not as interested in reading, like, the teenage stuff. Like, she's just such a teenage mm. girl, and I think that's a great and important and valid story, and I just don't know if it's what I want which is totally fine and not bad it's just what it is but that does sound kind of interesting to see how that plays out with the parents especially with the dad as well that's kind of interesting Mm. because as you were talking like the whole like maybe it is realistic and a good thing to show like sometimes people just need to get away from their parents and do their own thing and become their own independent adult but I was trying to think like do you ever see that it's the father that they need to get away from and maybe you do I'm just trying to think through as opposed to like, so I was well, thinking about Tom Paris and like his is to kind of come full circle and to come back and then to get along yes. again. But I mean, I guess he does really do it though by getting away and doing his own thing and growing as a person. Yeah, I think Julian and Spock are the characters who need to get away from their dads. Spock, you said? Spock? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Just putting oh, that well, out there. I think maybe. they have a fraught relationship. Possibly. <laughs> yeah. Poor Sarek. He knows what he did. But, I mean, I've described Voyager, <laughs> I've described Voyager as, uh, as uh, all about, like, it's a coming-of-age series. Mm-hmm. But, but mm. even though they're all adults, it's like mm-hmm. they, they, you know, it's one of those, uh, it's a journey, like the Odyssey, you know, you get away, mm. and that's where you grow, and then you come back at the end. Like, that's the story they're telling. Mm-hmm. That's so I true. Think, Everybody in Voyager is sort of playing out that journey in some way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and with Tom, 
it is all related to his father, but they 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 all sort of have something back home that they're uh, avoiding and also have to reconcile in order to get back. Chakotay is another character who doesn't have a mother, yep. which and a fraught relationship mm-hmm. with his dad. Mm-hmm. I'm just so many of these characters just. Yep. Like Han Solo, they don't need to call their mums. You know, uh, Balana, we meet both her mother and her mm-hmm. father in various ways. Mm. Um, neither of them, like, we don't see, we don't, we, you know, her dad's in a flashback and her mom's in fake hell. <laughs> well, we do see dad in real life, too. Oh, yeah. They I, talk oh, over the subspace. End, they, they speak yeah. over subspace, yeah. So even though she has a whole episode about her mom... Mm-hmm. And she names her daughter after her mom. Mm-hmm. Her relationship with her father has more of a resolution, her, and her relationship with her father is more of a driving force. It's like mm. the, because the you know at the end of the day, Barge of the Dead is is about mm-hmm. Bolana and Janeway and the greater <laughs> Voyager family more than it is about Bolana and Morale. Yeah. So I'm glad that we get Miral. I just like, this is where I just say, I want more of her. I want to know yeah. more of that story. I want to see mm. Bolana growing up with her mom because she spent a lot of more time, a lot of, ugh, she spent more time with her mother than she did with her father when she was mm-hmm. growing up. But her father, again, her father's absence seemed to have more of an impact. Yeah. Because she does discuss her mother and her mother like disapproving of her mm-hmm. but it's more of like i hate klingon culture there are all these rules than it is i had difficulties explaining to my mom yeah it's sort of you can see the seeds of a relationship there but we never quite see it yeah grow even though it's all in the past so we're going we're over an hour so we should probably wrap up <laughs> But can I quickly throw in that the relationship between Carol and David Marcus is mm. one of my favourites in all of Star Trek? Yeah. Because as much as I love legacy fic, what I particularly love is adult, like children who are adults and their relationship with their parents. And they have a really cool professional relationship where they push and they pull and they argue and they really respect each other, but they also keep things from each other. Whether yeah. that's the identity of David's father or... <laughs> hey, maybe I put some proto-matter in our planet. Oops. <laughs> One of these things has slightly more impact than the other. <laughs> At least they're complicated. <laughs> but it bugs me that we never see Carol after David yeah. dies. Yeah, I know. Like, I, I think she's a, a... I mean, Carol is a great character because... We get to see, you know, she's like really, she is what I would point to as the the single mom who actually we, you know, as much as Beverly is a single mom, we don't really mm. treat her that way. Mm-hmm. Whereas Carol, you know, chose to be, chose yeah. to raise her son on her own. Mm-hmm. And clearly she brought him to all the seminars and conferences she went when he, when, uh, when he was young because he ended up doing the same research as her. So... It's like I can imagine their whole life together and how she didn't let yeah. him stop her in any way. She just brought him along everywhere, and I completely respect that. I, my older daughter was born while I was in college, and I just that, 
you know, I was like, we're, we're going to go to college now. <laughs> and, and, you know, and so I, I think that that is, di- that is different from um, my peers, my, uh-huh. my peers parent in a very different way where they base their schedule around their child, at least to a certain age point. Mm. And I, you know, out of necessity or personality, just didn't do that. <laughs> and yeah, I'm not saying it's better or worse, but I'm just saying I appreciate Carol Marcus for existing in that realm with me. Yeah, but I think it's so great that it shows how that can be positive. Yeah. Like that experience growing up would be very different than anyone else's, but that will affect them in a certain way and lead to certain things, and that can be a, a positive thing, and they can really benefit from that. And yeah. I think that's super cool. Yeah, that there's, there's all sorts of different paths to motherhood. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. That's nice. I don't really want to pri- like I don't want Star Trek to privilege one kind of motherhood over another. I just want to see lots of lots of mothers who matter. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I like that. Lots of mothers who matter. That's nice. <laughs> That's what I want. Occasionally we get it. <laughs> my my last uh, my my last point that I just want to make is in term uh Cassie Yates I think is the only mm. step bomb we see. Mm. Think you might be right. So, oh gosh, now I'm trying to think. <laughs> wow. And so, and she has a great relationship with Jake. Like it's mm-hmm. so strong, and I just really like every time they sort of gang up on Ben and, and make him do stuff. Yes. <laughs> um, and uh, starting with Jake setting them up. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I just, I, I, uh, you know, I just want to put a, a shout out that I think that is good representation of building a family, mm-hmm. especially when, you know, they are introduced, Jake and, and, and Cap, uh, Commander Sisko are introduced as missing the maternal figure, like that, that is one of their mm-hmm. main characteristics mm-hmm. in the beginning is we went through this terrible trauma. Mm-hmm. And so it's, I, you know, I'm always interested in the aftermath of trauma and how you get through it. Um, and I think mm. that Cassidy is a really good representation of someone new who is brought into the family and, and changes it. And they, you know, they all learn how to live together. And then, yes. and then, you know, Jake is lucky that he has her when they go through that trauma again and they lose of losing Cisco. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like Jake is going to be helpful to Cassidy and her baby and Cassidy is going to be helpful to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is you don't often see step parents who come into the family when the children are adults yeah. and ha- have a really good, respectful, positive relationship with mm-hmm. them. And like I was in my twenties when my father remarried. So that's sort of how my family works. And yeah, it's just really cool to see. Any final thoughts? I can't believe we didn't talk about Lizard Janeway. I, what a deadbeat. I can't believe no one talked about Seska. Oh. Yeah. And by well, no one, I mean Annika. Because, because I don't like I don't consider her baby to be the That's not the, the important the part about her. her. Yeah. 
Well, that's that. I, and I can we get don't, that. You know, she's a, again, we don't get to see her raise her yeah. child. And mm. that's a missed opportunity. Uh, uh, the, once mean, again, they, plot device They definitely, only. like, wrote in between the second and third season, they were like, well, we got to write this baby out of this. Uh, <laughs> we got to get rid of this thing. And, and so they're like, oh, actually, it wasn't Chakotay's baby. So we don't have to care what happens Oops. to it. Like, yeah. it's terrible. It so, really yeah. is. I just, Let it just, like, yeah. Seska in season two is a mess, but I'm so sad that we didn't get to see her hanging around on Voyager, sort of a prisoner, sort of the devil on Janeway's shoulder, and, and raising her kid. Yeah. And being like, hey, maybe don't play with the baby, Naomi. That child is going to be an evil influence. And the half Cardassian baby is like, yeah. yay, a friend. Yeah, that's the that's the uh, the version that I want. <laughs> is is yeah, there's so many interesting things they could have done with stay. that? Yeah, I yeah. mean they I never would have. There's but. a lot of it, it's it comes back to like they they have this idea of we want to explore family and uh, childhood and motherhood and even fatherhood, but they they don't want to be like they don't want to be tied to it in any way. So. Mm. They start, like, I just, all the way back to the beginning of The Next Generation, it's like, now there are families on this ship. Like, we are showing you a society mm-hmm. where we are traveling together, and they even have, in the main cast, a mother mm-hmm. and son, but none of that goes anywhere. Like, yeah. it's not, it's never a big part of anything. It's only, like, when... We need to put someone in peril. We're gonna have, mm-hmm. we're gonna show some kids, um, or we need to soften Picard's image. So we're gonna have him wander around with these children and sing French songs. <laughs> like, they they don't know how to use the tools that they started with, and Voyager is the yeah. same way. They mm-hmm. there's a lot yeah. of missed opportunities where they just like, they don't. Again, they don't trust their premise, like what I was saying with Discovery. It is a theme. Maybe yeah. it's a theme in television and not just Star Trek. That that they don't they don't trust the ideas that they start with. Mm-hmm. I do think that it's a problem endemic to television, and I think it's related to the challenges of uh, writing by committee and group. It's a group assignment, writing for television mm-hmm. and yeah. meeting the needs of your network or your streaming service and the money people and all of that. It is, you know, every television show is a work of compromise. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it succeeds in spite of itself, which is glorious. All right. Anyway, that's my grand unified theory of television. Should we wrap up? <laughs> yes. Caroline, can you so just I'm say one more time where we can find you online? Sure. So uh, everyone can find me on Twitter at Riker's Sex Blouse and on Tumblr at rikerssexblouse.tumblr.com. And if you're feeling particularly adventurous, you can look me up on Archive of Our Own, uh, where it's shortened to R underscore S underscore B. All right. Thank you for listening to Antimatter Pod. You can find our show notes at antimatterpod.tumblr.com, including links to our social media and credits for our theme music. You can also follow us on Twitter at at antimatterpod. Sometimes we post cat pictures and questions for our audience. 
If you like us, leave an iTunes review. The more reviews, the easier it is for new listeners to find us. And join us in two weeks for our 20th episode, a discussion of Growing Up Trekkie.